brought to you by Penguin. Hello, I'm Izzy Sutty, and this is the Penguin Podcast, where we talk about books and writing with all kinds of authors. If you're a regular listener, you'll know we usually have one guest in each episode, but this week we're doing something a bit different. We're meeting five writers who all have their first novels coming out this year. There's a huge range of different topics and writing styles, from a darkly comic dystopian novel about motherhood to sumptuous historical fiction with a bit of crime caper thrown in. And it was so much fun talking to them all and reading their books. And I hope by the end of the episode, you'll have heard about a book or two that you want to add to your own reading lists. The first writer I spoke to was Jasmine Chan. I loved reading The School for Good Mothers. It's such clever writing. It's dark, it's dystopian. It takes you to places you couldn't predict. And it's also really funny. And uh, here she is. Hello, Jasmine. Hello, Izzy. It's so nice to meet you. And you. So I loved the book. I really haven't read anything like it. It. I was... I never, ever knew what was going to happen next. And I didn't see lots of things coming. And I just thought it went, she went on a brilliant journey, the main character, Frida. So um, just tell us a little bit about the story. Well, I tend to describe it to people as being like 1984, but for moms. So it's about a Chinese-American single mom named Frida Liu, who loses custody of her toddler daughter, Harriet, after having one very bad day and has to spend a year at an imaginary government reform school in order to get her back. But the reform school is so brilliantly written. I could really picture it all, the characters, the other mums that she meets there. What I really loved about it as well is that what some of them have done is actually what a lot of parents would do if they were having a difficult time, if they were distracted. And I found that really interesting, the kind of blurring of the lines between what is acceptable on a bad day and what is unacceptable on a bad day. And that's what made it kind of more frightening because it felt like, hey, this actually could happen. Here, certainly, if you do something like leaving your child alone in the backseat of a car, maybe you won't lose custody, but you'll get in a fair amount of trouble if someone catches you and calls CPS or the police. But I was interested in writing about a scenario where there's a much bigger net of transgressions. So everything from complaining about your child too much on Twitter to having an argument with them on the sidewalk to to actual neglect. So I wanted, to, it was a way to write about both a real world problem, which is family separation, and as well as talking about the larger culture of um, all of our judgment of parenting. And am I right in thinking when you first started writing this, you didn't have any children and then now you have a daughter, is it? Yes, my daughter Lulu is about to turn five. So she'll actually turn five two days before my book comes out in America. So um, unfortunately, she's maybe not going to get as much attention from me that week. <laughs> but I, my husband is going to plan a birthday party. And um, the story of, of how I came to write the book is that I was ruminating so much about the decision of whether or not to have a baby, which for some people is very natural and easy, but for me was a, a huge decision, probably the biggest decision of my life um, to choose one path or the other. Because in a lot of ways, we could have been 
happy and had a happy life without having kids. So it was a it was a big decision for me and my partner. And part of that ruminating um, led to the book. So the joke I tell now is that I was so nervous about motherhood that I started a dystopian novel about it. And that was <laughs> that was my way of uh, dealing with the anxiety because there's a lot of cultural pressure to have a baby. I mean, there's a lot of pressure from one's parents, um, but also just pressure from the world to to choose motherhood. The other set of questions was, can you impose American parenting standards on someone from a totally different culture? So I think by building a lot of my experience as a Chinese American woman into the book, that was one way of um, talking about American parenting too, from from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, that's really present in the book, isn't it? Um, Her sense of who she is. Did you, from the beginning, think, I do want to include this theme, this exploration of of race and identity, or did that just kind of come out as you were writing it? Well, in real life, this type of surveillance and punishment primarily happens to women of color, and it's very dependent on class. So I wanted to acknowledge that, even if I'm not writing about it as a sociologist or journalist, I'm writing fiction. But I I wanted to gesture toward that larger truth, even if I'm creating an alternate reality. But for me, it was important to have Free to Be Chinese American, partly because growing up, I never saw myself on the page. I read a lot of contemporary fiction, but I don't necessarily come across a really complicated and thorny and flawed Asian American heroine necessarily, like Frida. And so as the years went on and on and the book still wasn't finished, knowing that I was putting a character like her into the world was helped me keep going and and like get toward the finish line to think like, oh, maybe this will push the conversation forward in its own small way. I think as a society, we're trying to move to a more equal way of parenting and, you know, men and women, mums and dads looked upon in the same way. But do you feel like women, like mothers still get the blame when things go wrong with kids? I think I'm surprised by the fact that everyone in the media at least seems so shocked that childcare is required for society to function. And I guess I'm surprised because it should seem obvious that it's not actually possible to do a full-time job and care for your child full-time, but yet women are supposed to do it as if by magic and still get a full night's sleep and have a great figure and see their friends and have a meaningful life and everything. Have you got an object that you'd like to tell us about? I do. So this is my this is my snail from Mexico City. So I feel a great kinship with snails. So I would say that these are my spirit animals because I work very, very slowly. So I started writing when I was 18, which is now 25 years ago. So it took a very long time to get to this first book, even though this was the dream I was working toward this whole time. So I didn't work on this one book for all those years, but I have been working on writing for all these years. And it it took probably my entire adult life to get to this point. So I'm definitely a late bloomer. And the snail is also meaningful to me because I wrote the the whole first draft of the book longhand in notebooks, which is the most inefficient way to work. In my professional life, almost every job I've had is as an editor. So I am by nature someone who loves cutting stuff. And if I were to compose on the screen, I would end up 
writing 20 pages and then have one sentence at the end because I probably just delete so much. So I didn't publish my first short story until my mid thirties and I'm publishing my first novel at 43. So, so snails are very meaningful to me. When people are listening, they've just heard you talk um, so brilliantly about it. It's so funny. It's, it's darkly funny. It's so, you know, it, I just felt like I was um, <laughs> living in that institution with the women rather than as one of the teachers, because the teachers are another group that you just have to read it. Um, I think it's it's so good. I haven't read anything else like it. And um, I was really, really rooting for Frida and I think everyone will be just from the beginning so congratulations. Thank you I'm so glad you responded to the humor because so much of working in a novel is just entertaining yourself for years <laughs> in isolation yeah. and so I could only hope that the jokes that I found funny would also be funny to other people. Nikki May is a Nigerian-British writer who dropped out of medical school at the age of 20 and began a career in advertising. Her debut novel, Wahala, is the story of three friends whose lives are turned upside down by the arrival of a glamorous interloper from their past. It's a darkly comic and subversive take on love, race and family. I thought it was wonderful. I thought it zipped along. I thought it had this electric energy about it. I loved the friendship between the three main women. That's uh, perfect. I'll take that. Great. Some people have described it as a brown sex in the city and I'm happy with that too. Okay. I like that. Yeah. I mean, but there's so much in it. I believe the idea actually came to you after lunch with some it friends. Did. And that doesn't surprise me at all because it has that richness of that thing that you can only really get, I think, in female friendships, that kind of depth and the, the knowing each other inside out. So, yeah, tell us about what happened. Was it straight after you came out of the restaurant that you had this? I live in the middle of nowhere in Dorset and this was a lunch in London at a Nigerian restaurant with really close friends who are also Anglo-Nigerian and it was very long and very loud and there was some wine involved. And as I boarded the slow train home, I could almost feel myself code switch out of Nigerian me and into English me. And I realised we all have these two identities, these two cultures, and sometimes one is further forward than the other and I sat on this train very boring journey and I started sketching out three characters I'd always wanted to write a book like everybody does and you always think there's a book in you but I was thinking about grand scale ideas and plots and what happened on that train was I thought about characters instead and I thought about their lives and how women's lives are really complicated and we have all these things pulling and pushing and tugging us and expectations on our jobs our careers our hair our bodies even our reproductive organs and and when you refract that through a biracial lens, how it gets even more complicated. So in that train, and a lot of the conversations we'd had at lunch came into play, how one minute we're talking about Igussi stew recipes and the next minute we're talking about the best flour for focaccia. And it was that kind of dual thing going on. Was there always going to be this kind of big plot moment? And did Isabel come second after the three main friends. Isabel definitely came second, but I always knew I wanted to write a book that had lots of drama in it and was really entertaining. And what I wanted was for 
I was really lucky that I knew nothing about genre. Although I read widely and I've probably read a book a week since I was 12, I don't think about genre. I just go to the bookshop and pick a book. So if I'd known what I know now, I probably wouldn't have tried to mix these two genres. But to me, it made perfect sense. Why can't you have a character-driven book that has a really propelling plot and this epic revenge story at the end of it? I think the thing about it not be like you wouldn't have done it if you'd known I think it's fantastic. When the thing happens, I don't want to give anything away about, it doesn't jar at all. It's just like, and this book has this happen as well. Like, and I could just I could just imagine it as a TV show, which I believe it's going to become, which is really exciting. How much can you say about that at this point? Well, it's also surreal that I keep wondering if it's true, but it is true. It's been commissioned, not just optioned, commissioned by the BBC. And Liz Kilgariff, who is a superstar, she did Bodyguard and Luther and the Cry. She's going to be the producer and the script is being written as we speak. I'm going to be looking at the script early in January by BAFTA-nominated Teresa Coco, who did Rocks. So it's just surreal. But I have to admit, my background in advertising meant that as I was writing it, a lot of the scenes I saw visually, yeah. it's just a dream come true to know that it's actually going to be a six-part series on the BBC and even my dad has heard of the BBC so he's over the moon. Yes I love the side boob at lunch there's so many brilliant lines in it it's really funny and again the humour I think comes from the love that the friendship group has for each other. What I really love about it is that all the characters are flawed in some way. And I think that's really refreshing. I think flawed women are so much more interesting. I mean, nice people are boring. You want people to be a little bit bitchy and a little bit flawed and make mistakes. Are you finding that the women you were having lunch with before you wrote this first scene are going, am I in it? Are any of the characters based on me? Issy, every single time I go for lunch with my friends now, it's, is that one me and is this one me? And nobody had read it before I got my deal. In fact, the only person who'd read it was my husband. So now they're starting to read it and they're like, are those my cushions? And is that really me? It's like, no, it's, there's bits of everybody I love in bits of the characters, but nobody is actually anybody. And if they start going on too much, I say, Isabel, Isabel based on you. Have you got an object with you that you'd like to tell us about today? Yes, I have. And the object I've chosen is a picture of me and my dad at my grandfather's funeral. And this was in 1981. And this picture was on my desk all the time I was writing Wahala. And I think subliminally, it might have infiltrated my book because my book is very much about family and there's a sort of underpinning of the secrets you inherit that's in there. And there's a bit of a father theme going on. And the other thing it helps me do, I often glance at it while I was writing. I glance out of the window and there's the Dorset rolling hills and a few sheep. And I'd look at this picture and my two cultures would literally seem as far apart as it's possible. This was a funeral, but it was a party. It was a huge Oambera two-day event. We're wearing white, not black. We're celebrating his life. He was 81. What a good age. He'd done so many things. And it's almost the total opposite of an English funeral. And it's really, it does Sometimes my two cultures are so different and I still feel totally comfortable in both of them. And other times they're so similar that I hardly notice they're both. So this photograph, I think, sort of subliminally got in my book without me knowing, because when I look at it now, I can see so much in that picture that is in Wahala. It's also a really lovely picture. I think the expressions on both of your faces are just, you just look like you're having such a good time. (laughs) 
It was, I, I love the gele. I can't tie them, but I have this gele and it's a real skyscraper. I remember my aunt tying it that day and they tie it really tight. So you look like you've had a facelift, which is actually great because it takes all the lines away from your face. I feel like that really comes through in the book, that sense of family. I think there's that and also growing away from your family and being embarrassed about growing away from them but knowing that you have to grow away from them and there's also times when you're embarrassed by your own family and then you feel ashamed how could I possibly embarrass they're lovely and I love them it's that whole fitting in and not fitting in and I think it's just such an interesting vein for fiction that was just there to be explored. Another writer with her first book out this year is Susan Stokes Chapman. Her novel Pandora is a gorgeously sumptuous story set in Georgian London where the discovery of a mysterious ancient Greek vase leads to conspiracy, revelation and romance. And it's inspired by a real historical event, a lost shipment of Greek artefacts which sank just off the Scilly Isles in 1798. The book was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize, which unearths treasures from unpublished writers in 2020. And I spoke to Susan from her home in Gwynedd. Hello, Susan. Hello. Nice to see you and hear you. Nice to see you and nice to hear you. Um, this story had me hooked from the beginning. It's, I mean, plot-wise, it just ramps up and ramps up. It's so well-paced. I was really, really hooked did you always want to write a historical novel? Like, what came first? Did you hear about the lost shipment and get inspired? Or did you kind of have this story in your head and then tie it into the historical event? Well, I've always loved historical fiction. And I knew as a writer, I was always going to write historical. And the idea for Dora as a jewellery artist, that just kind of popped into my head immediately. Hermes the Magpie, he kind of appeared as well. I didn't set out actually to write a novel about... A Greek myth. I just had this idea for Dora as a jewellery artist in my head and I wanted to work with that. But actually linking um, the Greek elements to the Georgian period is surprisingly easy because they were so obsessed with Grecian styling. If you look at their architecture, you know, their clothes. Now, Pandora set in 1799, so we're not quite at the Regency period. But if you look at the Regency fashions, they're very, very similar to the Grecian outfits a lot of the women wore. So that linking the two, it was just a no-brainer, really. It came very, very naturally. But the idea then was obviously, right, how do I link all of this? And so I ended up going down a bit of a, a research rabbit hole and this shipwreck came up and William Hamilton, who was a, a diplomat who had been in Naples for a very, very long time, he was an avid collector of Greek antiquities, and so when I found out about this shipwreck, I thought, ah, I know how I can do this. Do you know anything about jewellery making? Because you describe it so intricately. Honest answer, no, when I started. I've always loved antique jewellery, actually. I spent a lot of my childhood being dragged around antiquity shops and there was always a lot of jewellery there. My mum loves her antique rings. So there was always an interest, but I didn't know anything actually about how to to make the jewellery. I didn't know anything about that. So I had to do the research for that. And it was always fun as well. It's not always about, you know, reciting a history book. You have to make the characters genuine and you have to make sure that historical kind of detail comes out through the characters that you're writing. I think it really shows, actually. And that's quite near the beginning of us meeting Dora. We see her 
working on one of her designs, don't we, with the magpie in the room with her, Hermes, which is such a great name. Tell us about your object, because you've chosen something that was on the wall when you were writing Pandora, and I think this is um, quite a special object to you. Well, it's actually more of a selection of things rather than one specific object. So I have a bunch of framed historical prints on the wall above my desk, and they range from cityscapes to country scenes. And I just find looking at them really inspiring. But I also find 18th century maps really fascinating. And for Pandora, I referred to Hallward's Map of London, and that's dated 1792 to 99. And it's a really handy resource. And you can find it on romanticlondon.org if if anyone's interested. So, yeah, it's a selection of things. I find it very difficult to kind of hone in on one in particular. I find inspiration from various different things. But it always helps if uh, that inspiration is linked to the era in which I'm writing. Tell us about your reading pile, which I, I've i heard is quite high. Yes, there, there are a lot of books on that reading pile. Some of them are research books for my, my next novel, but I've also been lucky enough to be sent proof copies of novels that are out in the coming months. And while I am a little slow with them, it is nice to dip in and out as a way of breaking up the long writing stints. There are so many brilliant novels readers should be looking out for, but I have to recommend Rosie Andrews' The Leviathan as a definite one to watch. Basically, if you like myth and magic in an historical context, then that one is for you. And lastly, if you had to give a tip to someone who wants to write a novel, what would be the one thing that, that you would say to them? It's taken me a long time to get to this stage. Before Pandora, there was another novel that I must have spent about 10 years on, probably far longer than I should have spent on that particular novel. But it definitely taught me, I think, how to write. And it gave me... I think it gave me the space to to understand myself as a writer and to also kind of... I think basically by writing that first novel, it it grounded me and it made me more determined because of the amount of failures I got with those that it was rejected over 40 times. And I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what, this one's not working. I'm going to put that away and I'm going to come to a, a new novel idea with a fresh mindset. And I actually think I've grown a lot as a person and I'm far more mature for having gone through that. And there are so many people who would be tempted to give up on that first hurdle. You know, if that first novel doesn't get where you want it to go, then it's so tempting just to jack it in. But I would basically tell anybody who's in a similar position, please don't, please keep going. If you believe in your writing, if you believe in the story you're trying to tell, it doesn't mean to say it will never be published. It could come out in a different form a few years down the line. But just keep writing, keep going, persevere, don't give up. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, I highly recommend your book. I think it's, you know, it's an era that I knew and virtually nothing about. And I feel like it was such a, just a journey that I was felt you took me by the hand and I trusted you from the beginning as the writer and was just intrigued by all the characters. And it's just fantastic the way so much happens and you just never, ever... Want to stop reading? You just want to find out what happens to Dora. So yeah, well done. It's such an achievement. Thank you so much. Thank you. Journalist Claire Alexander also has her first book coming out this year. It's called Meredith Alone. And although it has echoes of lockdown, it was actually started long before we ever heard of COVID. 
Can you tell us where you're sitting at the moment, Claire, and who is there with you? <laughs> so I'm in my office at the moment and I've got a dog behind me and I've got a, a smaller dog on my lap. I've got I've got my puppy here um, because I don't think they would be quiet in the other room and I try to time the naps, but yeah, it's just, it's not quite gone to plan. Is it your office, Claire? Is it one of those rooms that is just primarily used as an office or like me, does it get used for loads of different things like kids doing glitter and then I have to kind of move everything out of the way and try and yeah, write? Yeah, it's officially my office, but it gets used. It's basically... Um, it's a dumping ground at various times of the year. I've tried to make it my office, but I just can't keep the rest of the family out of it. It's the same with me. It, it, on my right, there's three bikes, a buggy that we don't use anymore. And yeah, it's, it's just impossible, isn't it? I always pictured having this amazing space that was just mine, but it never works out the way that you think it will. We just have to get on with it, don't we? If, if you've got, I always think if you've got to write, you just kind of have to do it wherever you are. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do work a lot in my office, but sometimes my bedroom is the quietest room of the house so I just take my laptop and end up sitting in bed um, writing up there so yeah you're right I work in my car sometimes as well. Brings us really neatly on to Meredith because she I mean I said in the introduction that she hasn't left her home for a long time we can all identify with that um, but she actually hasn't left her house for 1,214 days that's right isn't it at the beginning. What made you want to write about someone who was so isolated? Well I should probably say that I conceived the idea and actually wrote most of the book before COVID. <laughs> I think a lot of people might assume naturally that it was, yeah, it wasn't inspired by lockdown at all. She just came to me one day, a woman who hadn't left her house for a very, very long time. And at that point, I didn't know who she was. I didn't know why she was in this, you know, very strange situation that tiny seed of the idea really excited me. I feel like Meredith just, she was just there and she just wouldn't leave. <laughs> and I had to tell this story. Do you do jigsaws? Because jigsaws play such a big part in the story. It really made me want to start doing jigsaws. And I really do love this as I said, I think it's like armour, like her baking, her jigsaws. She's kind of like, I'm fine. I've got all these things that I do. I've got my routine. We can see as a reader that she she kind of isn't really fine, but she's telling herself that she is. And I love all these rituals. I love all these hobbies that she has and the ways of passing the time. And they're kind of more than hobbies, really, aren't they? Um, yes. Do you do jigsaws? Are you as addicted to them as Meredith is? Definitely not. I don't have Meredith's patience for jigsaws. Actually... It was so bizarre that I'd created this character of Meredith. And I mean, from the beginning, I had to give her hobbies that she could do at home. And I didn't want her to be on the internet all the time. So um, so Jigsaws was one that, you know, I thought of early on. And, uh, and then six months later, everyone was buying Jigsaws. You know, they were selling out. And during the first lockdown, we did actually buy a few Jigsaws. Um, and I did a couple with my daughter. I think I do have some things in common with Meredith, but it's definitely not 
a love of jigsaws and I don't have her baking ability either. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about no. it. It made me, I love the description of her baking. All the cakes just made me want to yeah. <laughs> go and bake. But again, baking requires patience mm-hmm. too, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe that's the thing. I just don't have, I don't have the patience. I think the thing about baking is at least you end up with something you can eat. Whereas with the jigsaw, you really are doing it for the sake of doing it in the truest sense, aren't you? You're doing it to put that final piece in and go... I did it, and then you take it apart again. Yeah, you don't even, you know, get to uh, get to ad- admire it for any length of time. Yeah. Um, how important was it for you to set it in Scotland? I could really picture the area. I could really picture the members of Meredith's community. And yeah, did did you always know that it would be set in Scotland? Yeah, I never thought about setting it anywhere else. I just had lots of first experiences in Glasgow and yeah, I just love the character of the city. So yeah, there was it was never gonna be anywhere else. But I'm really glad that came through because it was difficult when so much of the novel was set in Meredith's house, which, you know, it could have been anywhere. It's not like it was covered in tartan <laughs> yeah. and it was kind of, you know, like a fridge full of iron brew just to remind people that we were in, we were in Scotland. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I, I hope that readers will get that sense of place because, you know, it's where my heart is. But I think what you do brilliantly is you you do feel like you're there with Meredith. And as I say, I really imagine the layout of her house. And there are some really, really hard moments for her in her house when she wants to leave. And I suppose stepping out of the house is also a case of stepping away from her past, isn't it? Kind of trying to step on from her past. Without coming to terms with what happened in her past and you know, addressing those really difficult emotional issues, it would be impossible for her to take the actual steps down her front path anyway. Tell us about your book inspiration. You've chosen Janice Galloway's The Trick Is To Keep Breathing. I hadn't heard of this. I've just Googled it. It looks amazing. If there's one book I've gone back to again and again that just always really just hits me. And when I read it at 16, I didn't I didn't really know at the time why it struck such a chord with me. I just knew that it was a special book. And I realised why later on in life, you know, when as I became more mature. I mean, it's it's so bleak. <laughs> it's, it really is. It really is quite devastating. But it manages to be funny at the same time. And it's not an easy read because a lot of the time it's more like poetry than prose. And... I mean, Galloway just ripped the rule book up on syntax and punctuation. So the reader has to work hard. It's cha- it can be challenging. But I like books like that. And it's just, it's painfully real. But it's wonderful. I just love it. And I think when I read it, I hadn't read anything like it. It was so different. And Janice Galloway is also an Ayrshire girl, which I probably didn't know at the time. But there we go. <laughs> Your special object is a postcard. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, this it's a postcard from my my very first friend. We met when we were about three years old and we were basically inseparable until we went off to university and we didn't go to the same one. She went to Edinburgh Uni and I went to Glasgow and um, this was back before 
anyone had mobile phones. Well, we certainly didn't have mobile phones. So we kept in touch through postcards and letters. <laughs> like there's so much distance between Glasgow and Edinburgh. But anyway, and uh, we were both studying English literature and we liked to send each other inspirational quotes and share poems that we discovered that we thought the other one might like. Um, but this particular postcard, there are no inspirational quotes. There's certainly not room for a poem. It's very kind of just 17-year-old girl chat. I'm coming home this weekend, so you better be too. And it's not something that I have like on display in my office. It's just something that seems to, it seems to pop up in a box or in a book now and again and it's survived several house moves over 25 years and it just when I read it it takes me back to being that 17 year old girl who dreamed of being a published writer so I guess it reminds me of how far I've come but it's also just a lovely keepsake of that particular moment in time we were just on the cusp of adulthood and it's also a reminder of of my friend in this 40 year friendship that we've had and I just yeah I hope it survives another 25 years Ayana Lloyd Banwo is a writer from Trinidad and Tobago whose short fiction has been published in Small Axe, Moco Magazine and The Caribbean Writer. Her debut novel, When We Were Birds, is due to be published in February 2022. It's a luscious and lyrical novel which plays with the essence of memory, loss and love's power to heal. I absolutely loved this book. Um, I really felt like I was immersed in the world as soon as I started reading it and the characters were so vivid immediately. The the city it's set in, I know that it's set in Trinidad and Tobago, but is the actual city largely imaginary? It is imaginary in the way that anything, I suppose, can be imaginary. It's drawn from the actual capital city of Trinidad and Tobago, which is Port of Spain. But I have stretched it out a bit made it smaller in places, moved mountains really, really close where they aren't. I think anybody who's been to Trinidad or at least spent time there will recognize parts of Port Angeles and will probably say, oh, that's not supposed to be there. What's that doing there? Or nope, no way. He'd take much longer to get there. (laughs) And I think in some ways that's kind of how cities are anyway. Yeah. That you can go somewhere and then go back five years from now and go back 10 years from now and suddenly be completely turned around in a place that you think that you know. I love this turned around thing that I haven't heard before. I feel like there's a real sense of that in the book, like because of the sense of magic in it, the sense of, I suppose, um, spirits, um, the world of the dead. I feel like in a way it's like the characters are being turned around. Like they're two lost souls to me on very different journeys. And you feel this, I felt from the beginning, this magnetic pull. They're going to come together. They're going to find each other. I'd love to know, how did the story start for you? What was the first thing that came to you? You know, this is a question that um, every time I answer it or I think about it, I'm never sure whether I'm answering it completely honestly, because the more you think about a beginning, the further back that beginning gets. So if you asked me when I started writing the novel, Then I can tell you I started writing it in Norwich in 2017. But this was a short story that I started writing in Trinidad before I even was applying to the Emmy. 
And then I think back, oh, actually, no, I probably started thinking about these characters ever since I began walking around Lapiru Cemetery looking for my great-grandmother's grave. <laughs> if I had to think of really where it started, at some point, my grandmother was getting older and um, my family is quite long-lived, so no one had died in, in quite some time. And at some point, it occurred to us that, gosh, we have no idea where we're buried. And she couldn't exactly remember where her mom was buried. She gave me this vague sort of direction. If you know, any West Indian auntie will give you a vague direction. If you're going by the this side and then you turn left, but don't go too far left. If you reach by here, you're going too far. Turn back, and, yeah. you know, it was that kind of direction. Somewhere on the side by the ice factory. Wait, the ice factory still there? They close it down. I can't remember. So, yeah, it was that kind of trying to walk around a, a cemetery looking for a grave that had no, it had no headstone. It had no plot number. And I had a vague sense that it was on the side by an ice factory that may or may not be there anymore. So I sort of started walking around Lapiru Cemetery with this strange idea that if I passed by her mother's grave, I would know it. I would know that it was there. Absolutely did not know that it was there. <laughs> it's a long story, but how can I shorten a long story? Everyone died. My dad died. My mom died. My grandmother died. And so I had to really start. I wasn't just wandering around the cemetery anymore. I was actually dealing with the paperwork of death and dying. And so there was the spiritual element and grief element of death. But then there's, there are people for whom death is their work. They dig graves. They work in mortuaries. They are nurses on terminal wards. So I suppose those two parts of thinking about death really started coming together. That really comes across, you know, because Darwin and Yajide have, at the beginning, they're in very different places in relation to death. I started writing about a man who had made a choice in his life a long time ago and then is forced to confront whether he's made the right choice. So Darwin actually began as a much older person. And then I started to think, I took it back to, okay, let's get to the point of the choice. That's where I wanted to build this novel around. Whether he decides to sort of go with the flow and, and of what's happening in this place or whether he decides to, you know, hold on to the principles that he came to the city with and how he navigates those two things. So I always knew that this was going to be a story where two people find a love that is more than coffee dates and romance and more than romance that their love was going to be transformative and that their love their their specific love and their specific coming together was going to be necessary for this place in a deeply cosmic way we walk around every day and encounter people who, at least in my cosmology, who are gods in human form. Their every choice, the fact that someone turns left or turns right, has a huge impact on the life of strangers that they don't even know. 
So I think I really wanted to think about, you know, what happened if two young people fell in love and had this huge impact and no one ever knew. Everyone just woke up the next day and went about their lives. Have you got an object that you've brought to to talk about today? Yeah, I'd love you to tell us about it. So I thought about, because I, you know, I, I looked around. I'm rebuilding home here, right? So I left Trinidad. It still feels weird to say I left Trinidad because I have not left Trinidad. I have come to school and then did more school and then found a husband. So I'm still in that space of... I've not quite left, but I am here. So I came with two suitcases. I didn't have a lot of things, really. So my suitcase was books and the warmest clothes I could find, really. But I brought two things with me that weren't necessities. One was my dad's glasses. But the thing that I think about with writing more is this little bit of crochet. So my mom crocheted. And she taught me to crochet when when she can get me to sit still enough when I was a little girl. And I always, I remember vividly sitting and sort of just watching her hands move with this needle. And it just seemed like the most fascinating thing. It was almost hypnotic, just watching. And sometimes she'd be watching TV and crocheting, sometimes telling me a story or talking to me. And... um. I actually can't remember whether this was something that maybe I did a long time ago when she was teaching me or whether she did. But the thing that I liked about crochet and I like about this little bit is one that's unfinished. This isn't meant to be something. This is just, you know, four little motifs that are put together that might have been a large doily or a bedspread or something. So it's just a fragment of a period of my life that I only have a shadowy sense of where it came from or what it was or what it was for. And so much of stories, I think, are like that. There's a little fragment of something that you remember or that you've held on to or that kind of hits your ear like, oh, that's interesting, that's strange. And then you sort of build and build and build and build on on that I'm very attached to the things that women made with their hands for their families and that created a nurturing environment for with 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 the women in in, in my life that raised me. You know, they were going about their own business. They liked to crochet, they liked to knit, they sat and they chatted, and you know, it was a way to make something for the home that didn't cost a lot of money you could make something you can give it as gifts so you didn't have to go to the store and spend all this money and 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 that kind of thing so i think um from a craft perspective i think of the fragment the little bit of a thing that inspires the making of something larger that you can't quite see at the moment when you just do one stitch one more stitch one more stitch but i suppose from a wider things that I'm interested in about women and women's lives and the things that we pass down, the things that we teach, the little things that we remember as children and kind of continue into adulthood. For me, it's watching my mom crochet. So that's something that I I picked up and I brought it with me for sure. 
And that's something that her hands have made. And as you say, even if, because your memory is slightly fuzzy, even if it is something that you made under her tutelage, it doesn't matter. Her hands have still essentially touched it. It's a lovely emblem of, of love, isn't it? But what you just said reminded me of when my dad lost his job when I was a baby. My parents didn't have any money and my mum knitted dishcloths for everyone for Christmas and that was the only way they were able to give presents. And yeah. Exactly. And these are important things. You know, we should not discount that women have carried carried us on their backs when, you know, the man was out of work or, or you know, someone got sick or there was nobody <laughs> or there was no man in sight, you know. It was our mothers and our aunts and our mother's friends and, uh, you know, who figured out, no, we must have Christmas for the children. We'll find some little toy, some little thing. The way communities got together, helped each other in the absence of wealth, in the absence of financial comfort. Our mothers and grandmothers and aunties who sometimes sent us to school. You know, I remember when I was trying to... So I got a scholarship from UEA for, to do my MA, but it covered tuition. It didn't cover everything. And so um, that's a whole other story about how I was able to raise this money. But I would never forget, I read at an event and there was a lady... And of course, they said at the event that, you know, I have a GoFundMe to raise funds for for me to do my ME. And this lady just came out with her little handbag, you know, a little old lady pocketbook, and pulled out a hundred dollars. A hundred dollars, TT, is probably 10 pounds, maybe less, depending on how the thing fluctuates. And pressed it into my hand like if she was, you know, when you go by your granny when you're small and she give you a little sweet or she give you a, a, a pence or whatever it was when you were little. I could have bawled down the place, you know. So that I don't know what this lady's financial situation was, but she handed me this money like, yes, child, go ahead. Yeah. It was important to her to do that, wasn't it? It was important to her to do that. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. it leads us so brilliantly back to your book because I feel like there is the women in that book, the generations of women, the gift that's passed down the generations of women is for leading the the dead into into the afterlife it's so vivid it's so i can tell that you know that you know that you have that in your bones the way that you write about that aspect of your day's life it's um yeah it's brilliant and i'm sorry we have to end because i feel like we could talk forever but um yeah <laughs> i just i i loved the book i thought it was such beautiful prose i just felt as i said like i was in this world enveloped in the atmosphere of the city and just on this journey with both of them and i felt similarly to knitting i felt time go by in a different way um when i was reading it so yeah um thank you so much no worries that's it for this episode. I hope you found something to add to your to-read pile. Nihal is in charge for the next episode and he's talking to four fantastic writers whose first non-fiction books are out this year. And if you can't wait two weeks, you can find all of our previous conversations wherever you're listening to this. Subscribe to the Penguin Podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help other book lovers find us. 
let us know if there's someone you'd love us to talk to. You can find us in all the usual places. And finally, if you want to find out more about the podcast and the authors we've been talking to today and their books, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. I'll see you next time. <laughs>